Peter Claver once said, we must speak to them with our hands by giving before we try to speak to them with our lips. Welcome to the 44th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because it's important for us to remember that we lead with love, not with words, and that love has the power to change lives. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, Audrey stopped by to ask about the Myers-Briggs and other personality tests and ways they can be helpful and hurtful and how they might affect our faith and prayer. It's interesting, Audrey. I see a lot of people on Catholic social media posting about Myers-Briggs and other personality tests and seemingly putting a lot of stock in it. Where my ISFPs at, for example? But in all honesty, as a therapist and even as a normal person, I don't interact in any way with personality tests. I mean, I guess we had to learn a bit about them in grad school, but I don't use them at all in practice, and so they've just kind of fallen by the wayside for me. For context, the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator is a pseudoscientific introspective self-report questionnaire indicating differing psychological preferences in how people perceive the world and make decisions. Thank you, Wikipedia. It was created by a mother and daughter team and based on Carl Jung's idea that people experience the world using four principal functions, sensation, intuition, feeling, and thinking, and that one of these four functions is dominant most of the time. The 16 types of personality are referred to by an abbreviation of four letters. The initial letter of each of the four type preferences, uh, except in the case of intuition, which uses the abbreviation in to distinguish it from introversion. For instance, ESTJ, extroversion, sensing, thinking, and judgment, INFP, introversion, intuition, feeling, and perception. So how can this and other tests be helpful and hurtful? Well, a pro is that people enjoy doing these kind of things, find them meaningful, and sometimes we like to find categories, diagnoses, etc., that help us better understand how and why we act in the way we do and how and why we experience the world in the way we do. In terms of cons, first and foremost, these tests don't seem to be at all very valid. In fact, one psychometric specialist, Robert Hogan, once wrote, most personality psychologists regard the MBTI as little more than an elaborate fortune cookie. In addition to that, there's the danger that people start to define themselves by their results and then act from that definition rather than just from being their authentic selves. In terms of how personality tests might impact our faith or prayer. Oh boy. I really hope they don't. This is another huge potential con that people allow personality tests to somehow inform our faith. They get sucked into them and let them inform our prayer life. When in reality, our faith and our prayer life should be informing everything else, not the other way around. I know they can be popular or fun or interesting to talk about on social media, but perhaps it's best we looked upon these personality tests uh, with uh, like they're just mere entertainment instead of putting too much stock in them. On to the next topic, Grace asks, how do you not take on the pain and suffering of the people you help through therapy? Well, Grace, the most honest answer I can give is that sometimes I do. Now, I know that uh, most therapists or grad schools will tell you all about how important it is to engage in self-care, have some sort of end-of-the-day ritual where you leave behind everything you've experienced and things like that, and that's most definitely true. But to be completely honest, there are some people who come in 
that I meet with and I can't help but take on some of their pain. That's basic human empathy. And not admitting that this is true at least some of the time would just be inauthentic. Now, one benefit of meeting with so many people down through the years is that a lot of the things we talk about, a lot of the things, uh, the experiences I hear are things that I've heard over and over again. And that really helps me to not let it seep into my soul or cause me to experience vicarious trauma, right? That being said, that only comes with time and seeing lots and lots of people. But when I meet with someone who has experienced a trauma like one I've never heard before, one so terrible I can't get it out of my mind for the whole week, or when I, I meet with someone who has uh, children the same age as me or are going through something difficult, uh, or or when I meet someone uh, who's experienced, like a mother who's experienced a pregnancy or infant loss, it's nearly impossible for me to not let it affect me. And in some way, I see that as a good thing. I see it as still being human, still having feelings and not allowing the people I meet with to just become like a number or another case. The way I handle those situations is to pray for that person or that family when it comes into my mind. Give it all over to Jesus. Prayer is such a great coping skill. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to introduce you to Servant of God, Elizabeth Clarice Lang. Born in 1784 in a Haitian community in Cuba, Elizabeth came to the U.S. in the early 1800s, arriving in Charleston and then stopping over in Norfolk, Virginia, before settling in Baltimore. In Baltimore, Elizabeth recognized Protestant organizations setting up schools for the growing free African-American population. Keep in mind that there were zero public schools for these children until 1866. Elizabeth and a friend, Marie Ballas, started operating a school in their home and were eventually asked by Father James. Jobert if they would be willing to start a Catholic school and start a religious order to teach the children. Thus, the Oblate Sisters of Providence were founded by Lang and Jobert as the first religious congregation of women of African descent in the United States, all focused on the Catholic education of girls. Mother Lang died 100 years to the day before my birth, and because of that and all the amazing reasons noted above, she has a special place in my heart and hopefully now all of yours. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Almighty and eternal God, you granted Mother Mary Lang extraordinary trust in your providence. You endow her with humility, courage, holiness, and an extraordinary sense of service to the poor and the sick. You enabled her to fund the Oblate Sisters of Providence and provide educational, social, and spiritual ministry, especially to the African-American community. Mother Lang's love for all enabled her to see Christ in each person, and the pain of prejudice and racial hatred never blurred that vision. Deign to raise her to the highest honors of the altar, that through her intercession, more souls may come to a deeper understanding and a more fervent love of you. Heavenly Father, glorify your heart by granting also this favor, that all listening to this podcast experience the overwhelming peace of God this very day, which we ask through the intercession of your faithful servant, Mother Mary Lang. Amen. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Sophie 
idea kicks us off. Is it wrong or a sin to self-harm? I guess maybe it is, since it's turning to something other than God for help, which is idolatry. Thank you so much for this question, Sophia, and I'd like everyone to join me now in prayer for Sophia and every single person who has engaged in self-harm as a coping mechanism, that Mary may intercede for them for peace to flood into their very hearts this day. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. At its core, self-harm is a coping mechanism that we have learned and have turned to with some benefit, right? Relief from anxiety, feeling something in the midst of a mood episode where we generally feel nothing at all, etc. And that benefit, even fleeting or brief as it may be, reinforces the behavior, sometimes with cutting, for example, the pain that we feel or the blood that we see brings us into the moment, almost like a mindfulness or grounding technique, and allows us to get uh, get out of our head and escape the racing anxieties that are making us panicked. One more important note, people using self-harm as a coping skill are almost never doing so out of feeling suicidal. It's so important that we all understand this. Yes, your loved one may be cutting their arms and that immediately makes you think of a suicidal person slitting their wrists, but remember, that's not what's going on here. In fact, someone engaging in self-harm is desperately trying to continue surviving by doing whatever it takes to get relief from their mental health symptoms. All that being said, it is an unhealthy coping skill, and we have to look to therapy or workbooks to help us identify and learn new healthy coping skills so we can replace the unhealthy ones that have developed. Now to your question, is it sinful to engage in self-harm since it's turning to something other than God for help, which is idolatry? First, and I should note that I am not a theological expert here, idolatry is the act of worshiping something other than God, so I don't think using something as a coping skill meets that definition. We turn to things other than God for help all the time, medication, therapy, support from friends. However, we have to understand that God can be reaching out to us through these things. So engaging in support or help from something other than God can often be God indirectly helping us. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting God wants us to self-harm as a way of getting help. Far from it. Just trying to point out that getting help for something, uh, getting help from something other than God is typically not going to be idolatry. Focusing on the sin aspect is hurting ourselves by cutting, burning, banging our heads, etc. Objectively sinful. Yes, I would say so. But we also have to take a moment to look at our culpability. And if we're engaging in these behaviors because of our mental health symptoms or because they've become reflexive after engaging in them over time and having them be reinforced by that temporary relief I was talking about, I would have to say that our culpability is seriously diminished. Remember, for us to be guilty of a sin that is mortal, among other things, we have to give our full consent of our will. And in self-harm, I would say that is almost never the case. I hope that all helps. Kevin is here next. Can I ask for help on how to stop replaying memories in my mind? I made a decision at work uh, that I now question my motivation, and I cannot remember that precisely as I want to. Am I to- and I'm tormenting myself by obsessing over this over and over again. So let's start by praying together for Kevin and all of us who suffer from replaying a past decision over and over again and enter into the pain of second-guessing ourselves unnecessarily. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. 
We've all been there, Kevin, and it's such a difficult and painful place to be. When we look back on our lives, we have to remember that we almost always make the decision that we think is best given everything we know at the time and everything we have thought through in the moment. Second-guessing ourselves at some point in the future does us no good because, as you mentioned, we can't possibly remember all of the different things playing into our decision at that moment back in the past. But realizing that doesn't necessarily make the constant replay in our minds stop. So here are some ideas to cope with this issue from healthyplace.com. Acceptance. Rather than fighting your doubtful thoughts, acknowledge them, accept that no one is perfect, and remind yourself of what's important to you so that you can keep moving toward what you value identify and seek when you're agonizing pick one worry one thing you're beating yourself up for and counter it look for evidence that it's not true affirmation write positive statements about yourself on note cards sticky notes or or sticks or paper or anything in your phone somewhere make each one short and meaningful to you like my comments add to conversations Meditation, prayer, and or deep breathing. When your mind races with self-deprecating thoughts, bathe yourself in quiet. Close your eyes, breathe slowly and deeply, and concentrate on the sound and feel of your breath and say a prayer for peace. Mindfulness. Pull yourself out of anxious self-doubt by grounding yourself in the present moment. Google grounding techniques to find some that really match up with your personality. You're in our prayers. Courtney wraps us up. Something I've really appreciated is what you've had to say about the importance of finding a therapist that is experienced in the areas that you need help with rather than strictly looking for a Catholic or Christian therapist. That being said, is there a certain process or qualification that a therapist must go through in order to market or identify themselves as Catholic or Christian? Great question, Courtney. Let's pray for everyone looking into therapy and trying to find a therapist that they may be guided to the therapist that can best help them with their symptoms and mental health experience. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. Just for context, yes, I have talked a lot on this podcast about the importance of seeking out a therapist who specializes in the symptoms or experiences you're going through rather than focusing on a therapist who brands themselves as Catholic or Christian. It's far more important to look into a therapist who knows how to guide you through recovery and wellness from OCD, for example, than to find a Catholic therapist and hope they know how to help you with your OCD. Therapists work hard to understand where the people they work with are coming from in terms of culture, faith, etc., and you can have confidence that they will accept your religious beliefs and even ask questions to get a better understanding way before they would ever suggest you going against those beliefs. Now to your question, is there a certain process or qualification that a therapist must go through to be able to market or identify themselves as a Catholic therapist? The answer is a big no. And this is another reason why I don't think it's something we should be all that worried about. This idea of calling oneself a Catholic or Christian therapist can sadly be little more than a marketing ploy to help draw people to therapy. Now, I should say, some people really want to see a therapist who is a Catholic or a Christian and don't feel comfortable with someone who doesn't espouse their worldview. And okay, that's okay if that's you. I mean, if that's the only person you're going to feel comfortable with, then go ahead because there's no point in starting therapy with someone you aren't going to be able to open up with and be vulnerable with. 
That being said, I'm reminded of stories from friends who go on like Catholic Match or some such website to find a Catholic relationship only to find the person's profile say things like doesn't believe in the real presence or doesn't accept the church's teaching on sexual morality. And it's like, what the heck is this person doing on a website called Catholic Match? And I think that the same principle can apply in the search for a Catholic therapist. Just because someone calls themselves a Catholic therapist doesn't necessarily mean they are a faithful Catholic or even understand the faith whatsoever. And with that in mind, I only feel even more certain that the best path is to find a therapist who understands what you're going through instead of finding one simply for the fact that they hang a crucifix on the wall. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna. 